Happy Wednesday to you, church family. Uh, let me invite you, as I always do, to get a copy of God's Word and find 2 Chronicles chapter 7 uh, with me, if you would please. 2 Chronicles 7, and we'll be looking at verse uh, 14. Uh, before we get started, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Can we do that? Father, we thank you for this time that we have on a Wednesday evening that we can gather around your word. We pray that you would speak to us, that you would challenge and convict our hearts and change our lives. And Lord, what we're going to talk about tonight, I pray that you would bring about daily lifestyle changes in us with our relationship to humility and prayer and repentance and seeking your face. Lord, that 2 Chronicles 7.14 is not simply a verse that we would underline in our Bibles, but that it would be a verse that we would uh, treasure in our hearts. We continue to pray for those in the church family who are experiencing trials. We pray for those uh, who are sick and under a doctor's care that you would bring about healing to them. We continue to remember those who have experienced recent losses in their family, that you would continue to be a shepherd to them and comfort them and fill the void that's in their lives. Lord, we pray for the church in America. We pray for our own church, that we would be about your business, about the business of the Great Commission. And may each of us remember that we have a responsibility in that, to reach those in our circles of influence and to be a witness. I thank you for the hunger that has been created during this time through this virus, uh, how we continue to read about Bible sales just absolutely going through the roof, the number of Bible sales. And God, I pray that you would use that seeking that people have, that hunger in their hearts, to reach them for Christ. And God, I pray that we as the body of Christ would be ambassadors for Christ, that we would be witnesses to those who are fearful and to those who are asking questions, that we would be instruments in your hands uh, to reach a lost world for Christ. Lord, be glorified in our midst, in our families, our homes, our work, our church, uh, in our own individual lives, just be ever-present with us and work your work, and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want you to read with me from verse 14, a verse that you may have committed uh, to memory. God is speaking to Solomon after the dedication of the temple. And the Lord says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. You know, yesterday more than 255,000 people joined together in a day of prayer that was referred to as praying on the mountain. A 95-year-old pastor here in North Carolina has been praying for years for a spiritual awakening in the body of Christ, not just in America, but around the world. I had the privilege of signing 
quite a number of our PITS mem uh, members up for this event. I was greatly encouraged by all of the people who emailed me and said, count me in and get me registered. So I, I trust that yesterday was a day of prayer for you. And of course, the theme verse of the day was 2 Chronicles 7, 14. Uh, that's the verse that Pastor Fred Lunsford had referred to on numerous occasions. But folks, I do want to encourage you, however, that this would not just be a one-day event where we kind of check it off our list and say, okay, we've been there and done that, and we move on. This needs to be a lifestyle for us of seeking the Lord, being humble before Him, praying, uh, repenting of any known sin in our lives, and praying for spiritual awakening. In the past, I have encouraged you from time to time to read about some of the great awakenings that occurred in North America and the world. It was amazing when you read about what happened surrounding those events. Police departments would virtually shut down as far as arresting people and putting people in jail because crimes were not being committed. Businesses were closing at lunchtime so that uh, people could go to area churches and spend their uh, lunch hour and part of the afternoon praying. You read some of the things that were going on, and, and it's just amazing. And I don't know about you, but when I read results like that of great awakenings, my prayer is, God, do it again. Do it again. Will you and I in our lifetimes ever have the privilege and opportunity of seeing something like that take place? I hope and pray that we do. We read a text like this from 2 Corinth, uh, Chronicles. I always want to say Corinthians, uh, 2 Chronicles. We read a verse like this from 2 Chronicles. And we wonder what God could do in a nation across an entire nation, across the globe, if God's people would truly live as a way of life by what this verse says. Now, I want to be clear about something. Second Chronicles 7.14 is addressed to the nation of Israel at a given time in their history, uh, fairly early on in their history. I've heard too many sermons today that take this text and seem to lift it out of that historical context altogether, and, and they preach it as though America or whatever nation they're in happens to be the intended target of the verse. But with that said, let me also point out that this passage points out timeless principles. The principles that God used with Israel still apply to us today. And so what I'm saying is even though this verse, you know, America obviously is not the subject matter of this verse, it still applies to us. It's still God's promises. This verse shows God's heartbeat for his people wherever his people live. After all, we're told that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, one other word of introduction. When you hear the promise of this verse, 
if all the promise means to you is that if God were to heal America, you would simply have more time to enjoy all of your stuff and do whatever you want to do in your life, then you've missed the point. As Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the reason Christians ought to pray and the reason we ought to pray for our nation and our leaders is that so that so that doors of the gospel will be opened and so that doors will remain open so that the word of God can get out to the hearts and minds of people and so that lives will be changed. And so that should be our motive in praying for the church, our nation, and our leaders that the gospel would advance around the world. Now what Second Chronicles promises is that God has a remnant of his people and what they do themselves can make a difference to the entire land. Sometimes people question, can, can I really make a difference in my life? And this passage says, yes, you can. So many people today would say also that what the church needs today is just love. Well, we obviously do need love, but this passage points out that God is also looking for a holy people. God is looking for a holy people to use. And so this passage addresses that as well. The first thing I want you to take note of with me tonight is the participants. The participants, notice in verse 14 what he says, if my people who are called by my name. You go back in Bible history all the way to the beginning and you see that God has always had a people. I think of God's call to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that Abraham was to leave his father's nation, go to a new land that God was going to show him and God was going to give Abraham descendants and he was going to make a nation out of them. We see that promise being played out in the book of Genesis. And then we see in the book of Exodus how God's people have gone down to Egypt and, and they end up in slavery and bondage. And yet God remembers his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. He brings the people out of Egypt. And he leads them to their own land, the promised land. When the people want a king, God gives them a king, Saul. Uh, Saul failed miserably. And then God raised up David. So God has always had his people, his covenant people. And that's why he says here, if my people who are called by my name, Folks, this is a verse that applies to the body of Christ. Remember with me also that David wanted to build a house for the Lord, but God would not allow it. God ordained that it would be David's son Solomon who would be the catalyst behind the, the building of the temple. Now, in the context of chapter 7, we see that the temple has just been completed and they've been dedicating the temple. Solomon has been caught up in prayer. We see that back in chapter 6. In fact, if you would turn with me back to chapter 6, and I just want to point out some of the verses that 
make up Solomon's prayer. There in verse 21, he says, Hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Then look down at verse 24. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land you give to them and their ancestors. Keep reading in verse 26. It says, When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray toward this place and give praise to your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants. Your people Israel teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land, uh, on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. He goes on to talk about famines, plagues, blights, mildew, locusts, when all of these things happen and the people repent and turn back to God, that God would bring healing. Uh, in verse 36, he says, When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. And you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to a land far away or near. And if they have a change of heart in the land where they're held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity and say, we've sinned, we've done wrong and acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their captivity where they were taken and pray to the Lord you gave their ancestors toward the city you have chosen and toward the temple that I built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their pleas, and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Those have been the petitions of Solomon in chapter 6. And so when we come over to chapter 7 and we, we look at this verse here, verse 14, what we see here is that God is responding to Solomon's prayer. God was pleased by Solomon's efforts on the temple, and, and he was responding. Folks, today, I want you to remember, you and I are the temple. We don't simply look to bricks and mortars. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're the temple. When we give priority and attention to the church, the people of the church, the bride of Christ, that is pleasing to God. We're his temple, and he won't say holy temple. God responded to Solomon with both promises and warnings. God promised blessing or cursing on the land in Old Testament times. In the Old Testament, I want you to remember the land factored in in a major way. And so God's favor could be seen, for example, with abundant crops, abundant harvest, for example. God's judgment, God's disfavor could be seen in things like floods and locusts and droughts. Recall with me in the days of Elijah, uh, King Ahab and Jezebel were leading the nation and they led the nation into Baalism, into idolatry. 
And what had God told his prophet Elijah he was going to do? He was going to shut up the heavens. There was going to be a drought and a famine that would result from that, that would last for, for three years. And so God's favor would be seen on the land. God, God's disfavor, his judgments would be seen uh, when he would bring things like drought, and poor harvest and famines and plagues on the land. And God's favor would be seen when he would bring abundance to the land. Now, as we think of applying that to today, I would be uncomfortable saying that every flood or hurricane or earthquake or tornado or virus or plague is, is a direct judgment from God. I, I wouldn't want to say that. But at the same time, I would be uncomfortable at saying God doesn't sometimes use some of those things to bring judgment on the land and get people's attention. But again, God is giving Solomon here a prescription for healing and revival in the land and so that his people can have a fresh encounter with him after they've sinned. Now, what do we learn also from this? We learn that God's people are the key to the well-being of the land. You know, Christians can be mocked. We can be persecuted. It's ironic, though, that the world can mock and persecute the very people who are the hope of the world. Christ is the hope of the world, but we are the body of Christ. We express that. And so in that sense, we're, we're the hope of the world in that we're bringing the hope of Jesus to the world. So the real hope of America today is the church. But oftentimes, God's people are in need of great change. God can't use us in the land if we're not right. And that's why in 1 Peter 4, 17, the Bible says, the time has come that judgment begins at the house of God. God's people need renewal and revival. Revival is not for the sinner. It's for the saint. A sinner doesn't need revival. He needs regeneration. It's the saints who already know the Lord that need revival. You know, in the church, it's like we're waiting or depending on the world to get right. We say things like, if we can only get the right people in office, as though we're trusting in politics. And like I've told you before, folks, it's not about a donkey or an elephant. It's about a lamb, the lamb of God. That's where our focus ought to be. If all you're doing is hoping for the right people to be in charge, then the Bible has a word for you. You may be nothing more than an idolater because you're trusting in something other than the Lord. The future of America depends on the church, the body of Christ, getting right. And then offering this message of hope, hope in Christ, salvation in Christ uh, to the world. We offer that message to the world. We're ambassadors for Christ. 
So we need to be right. Our biggest problem oftentimes, though, is that we have more of the world in the church than we have of the church in the world. But again, the participants. He says, if my people who are called by my name. Well, secondly, I want you to see the process. Did he say here, if my people who are called by my name will will just simply put all their activities out on the internet and be engaged in social media and have blogs and all that, then revival's going to happen. That's what's going to impress God. No, that's not what he says at all. What's he say here? Well, he lists out a number of things. First of all, he says that we are to be a humble people. Who's responsible for this? We are. He says, if my people will humble themselves. Folks, humility ought to be easy. But we find it difficult. It should be easy because of man's depravity. I want you to think with me a moment about two radically different images of man that we get in the scripture. On the one hand, man is lifted up in the Bible. The psalmist says, what is man that you are mindful of him? We learn from the very beginning of the Bible, from Genesis chapter 1, that we are created in the image of God. One theologian, Wayne Gruden, says that the image of God in man points to man's intellectual ability. It points to his moral purity. It points to his spiritual nature. It points to the fact that he has dominion over creation. It points to his creative abilities, the ability to make ethical choices, and the fact that he has a soul that lives forever, the immortality of man. The image of God, according to Wayne Gruden, involves all of those things. The Hebrew words for image and likeness refer to something similar to but not identical to the thing that it represents. And so the words also mean that we represent God. And so what I'm saying is on the one hand, the Bible has this exalted view of man that out of all of God's creation, it's only man that's made in God's image. That communicates a great deal about man. Uh, without possessing those attributes that belong to God and God alone, at the same time, the Bible is stating something very wonderful about man. Every person we deal with is somebody created in the image of God. Everybody has dignity and worth. I want you to think about that. Well, the Bible also talks, on the other hand, about the fall of man. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, they plunged the human race into the fall, into sin. And so the Bible talks about the depravity of man. Now, in redemption, we recapture some of what the image of God is supposed to be. 
And then when Christ returns, we will realize fully again what man was supposed to be all along as he was created in the image of God. And so my point is that the Bible gives an exalted view of man, but after the fall, it also points us as being people who are in desperate need. You can't help but look at the human race and see that something is desperately wrong. And what does Paul say in Romans chapter 3? There is no one who is righteous, not even one. We need to understand the severity of our condition. God created us to walk with him, to know him, to love him, to fellowship with him. Mankind has fallen into sin and we desperately need God to come to us and redeem us, regenerate us, and restore us. Folks, redemption is something radical that happens. God changes somebody from the inside out. He makes us a new creation in Christ. Let's don't forget what happens in regeneration how God makes us alive, spiritually alive. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We could do nothing to save ourselves, to redeem ourselves. We can do nothing to work our way to heaven. It's God in Christ who came down to us, condescended to us, and Jesus bore our sin on the cross, paid our sin debt, and takes us before God. And through the spirit of the living God, God calls a sinner to himself, convicts them of their sin, and gives them this new life, regenerates us. Again, I want you to see something amazing, something profound happens at the new birth. Folks, when we understand that God has brought spiritual life out of death for Christians and that there's nothing we could do to save ourselves. It should be easy for you and I to be humble. When we realize that if it were not for the Lord's work in us, as Jesus said in John 15, we would be nothing without him, could do nothing apart from him. When we realize where we were in our lost state without the Lord and that the salvation we have is only because of God's amazing grace, it ought to be humble for you and I. It ought to be easy for you and I to humble ourselves before the Lord. I think one of the reasons why the church in America hasn't seen revival is that we haven't gotten low enough yet. We're not humble enough. We're too proud. We need to be a humble people. That's the first part of the process here that he calls for. Second part of this process is that we are to be a praying people. One writer says, when most people pray for change in their country and for a revival, 
they're probably asking for a wonderful experience at church next Sunday morning at 11 a.m., but revival is more than a Sunday morning experience. He goes on to say, when you pray for revival, you're asking God for life-shaping experiences that will cost you plenty. It's agonizing because in revival, you become terrorized over your sin and you repent deeply. It's consuming because in revival, you have no time even for hobbies, for chores around the house, for work, for sleep. Revival crashes your daytimer. It interrupts TV times. It demands your full attention, and it wears you out. Usually when we pray for revival, we're telling God, sick them on the bad guys. Little do we realize that revival begins with us, the people of God. Is that the way you and I pray? Do we pray out of a desperation for God? Or is prayer just a little extra tack on that we do? Now personally, I think this second thing in the process here, this second part of the process, praying, grows out of the first. Humility. Because if we truly see ourselves as God sees us, it, it shouldn't be very difficult to realize that we need to call upon the name of the Lord out of sheer desperation. We only stand because of the grace of God. Every breath we take is the gift of a kind and benevolent God. Leonard Ravenhill once said, The church is dying on her feet because she's not living on her knees. What strongholds in your life? need to be committed to prayer. And again, are you crying out in desperation for God? For God to do something in your life that can only be explained as His work of grace. Are you, are you praying not simply for God just to make your day a little bit better, but for God to do a radical work in your heart where you're never the same again? Folks, that's how we need to be praying. Well, a third part of the process here. We are to be a seeking people. And you know there's something profoundly active about seeking Seeking is the man on his face before God crying out because if God doesn't move in his life and manifest himself in his life and change his life, then there's no hope. That's the picture of seeking. There's this thought of every fiber of our being is straining upward towards God. We're seeking him. He's more important than anything else around us in this world. You know, God said when we seek him like that, that we would find him. That was his promise also in, in, in the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah. It's the attitude that I must simply hear from God. I must encounter God. Now, folks, I want you to imagine the body of Christ. All of the millions of people in the body of Christ. What if that was our heartbeat? Every fiber of our being straining upward towards God. That, 
that nothing compares to him. Just imagine at the way God would work. What kind of nation would America be if the church was like that? And then a fourth thing, a fourth part of the process here, he points out that we are to be a repentant people. A repentant people. Anything in my life or your life that we know is is displeasing to God. Anything that grieves God, we need to lay it aside. We need to turn away from it. Any attitude, any action, any motive, anything in my life that God is not pleased with, anything in my life that I couldn't present as an offering, as an offering to God. Let me, let me put it that way. If, if there's anything in my life that, that would not be an offering to God, then, then I, need to, I need to evaluate what that is and, and, and I need to lay it aside. Certainly any transgressions in my life, breaking the Word of God, disobeying the Word of God, rebelling against the Word of God, having a hard heart towards the Word of God, I need to repent of all of that. Folks, where, where sin is exalted in a person's heart, the Holy Spirit will not be there filling that person to overflowing. It just simply won't happen. God wants a clean vessel. Even prayer without repentance is, is going to be worthless. Remember what King David said in the psalm? He said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. You know, today people want purity without penance, cleansing without confessing, and revival without repentance. And it's not going to happen that way. What could God do? What would God do in his church and then from the church in a nation? if his people were a repentant people. A humble people, a praying people, a seeking people, a repentant people. Folks, that's the condition that verse 14 sets down for God's people to do. Well, the third thing I want you to see, the promise. What does God say that he will do if we live according to what I've just pointed out? The Lord says here, Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. He says that he would hear. Again, Isaiah 59 1 to 3 points out that sin will keep God from hearing. In that passage in Isaiah, the scripture says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. 
For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wickedness. But folks, with sin out of the way, the promise here is that he would hear, he would forgive, and he would heal. Is our nation in need of healing? Absolutely. More so than I've ever seen in my life. Folks, you look at the landscape of America and even the landscape in the church today in America, what do we see? We see that everybody is divided over everything. Everybody's fighting and arguing about stuff. Nobody can do anything without somebody being offended. And I want to say a word about that. If, if you're offended by everything, you know what that is? That's pride. Think about it. Because somehow or another, you're thinking you're the standard in some way that everybody else needs to measure up to. So when they don't, you're offended. Folks, that's pride. We need to be offended by what offends the Lord. That's what we ought to be offended by. We're at a crossroads. We're at a crisis of belief in America. We now call good evil and evil good. And somehow or another, we think God's going to bless that and bring revival. And it's not going to happen. Folks, we value that which cannot save. Woodrow Wilson, in his closing words to America, said, and I quote here, Our civilization cannot survive materially unless we are redeemed spiritually. You can't say it any better than that. What we think we're, we're doing in the nation today will produce blessings, ultimate blessings that will get us where God wants us to be. And when we look at the landscape of America today, how we're exalting evil, folks, all it's going to do is promote a spiritual famine. And that's what we're experiencing. Now, if you're thinking that things are too far gone for God to bless us the way he says here, it's not. God brings beauty out of ashes. God does wonderful things out of brokenness. I want to give a story in the New Testament that's an illustration of this, how God brings beauty out of ashes and beauty out of brokenness. I want you to remember with me the parable of the prodigal son. He became distracted. He started pursuing all of the wrong things. He started living apart from his father. And it wasn't until he came to himself. Now, that's a statement describing repentance. One day he finally woke up and came to himself. And when he came to himself, he went back to his father. And when he went back to his father, he enjoyed everything that he had in the Father's presence. Folks, Christians have gotten distracted. 
We have pursued the wrong things. Consequently, we have found ourselves in a spiritual wasteland. We will only experience life, true life, when we return to the Father, the Heavenly Father. And we put 2 Chronicles 7.14 into practice in our lives. I want to challenge you this week. As we think about America... Not just to pray about America, but pray for the church in America. Pray for the church. In too many churches, the gospel isn't being preached anymore. The word of God is not being given its proper place. In some churches, we even find people who've turned away from, from the Lord. And too many in the church even that don't know the Lord. We need to pray for the church. Can I challenge you to do that? Pray for the church. Pray for our church here. That we would be a people that God would be pleased to walk in our midst. And to use us. That we would be holy and clean vessels that we would put a priority on the things that God puts a priority on. Pray that we'd be a humble people, a praying people, a seeking people, a repentant people. Again, I just want to remind you, the hope of America today is not Washington, D.C. or Raleigh, North Carolina or any other capital, any other state capital, or like I say, the nation's capital, Washington. That's not, the, that's not the hope of America. The church is the hope of America because it's the church that holds out the saving message of Jesus Christ. And I want to remind you that you're the church, I'm the church. We're the temple. Let's be the type of people in whom God would be pleased to dwell. God bless you.